I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Many shall be purified, cleansed, and refined, 
but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Happy are those who persevere and attain the 1,335 days. But you go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. The word of, the word of God for the people of God. Thank you to God. Well, we are finally at the end. Uh, and for those of you who are joining us um, at the beginning of your time here, but the end of this series, here, here's what I'll say, that is a lot of scripture and we do, do not normally read that much scripture, but we have been working our way through a book, um, the book of Daniel, and the second half of Daniel is this crazy apocalyptic scene that we cannot make sense of unless we also read Revelation next to it. And so we're finally at the end. I'll just bring you through all that we have done. Let's um, put a picture up here that's Thank you. Um, bring you through all that we have done so far. We started out with the story of Daniel, who um, is our exile character. The Jewish people are sent into exile in um, among the Babylonian people and are asked, are made to in, be enculturated into that society, um, are, are brainwashed to believe in their gods. And we have many different scenes of Daniel thinking that this is the end. Over and over and over again, you think it might be the end. Daniel gets thrown into the fire. It's not the end. There's a den of lions. It's not the end. And then the second half of Daniel begins to talk about this more fantastical view of the end. Maybe not Daniel's end, maybe not the Jewish people's end, but the, the end, the big end that we talk about in the church, the big end of Jesus, when, when are you coming back, Jesus? This is something we say at this table every single week that we believe that Christ will come again. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again. And so these last four weeks have been kind of wrestling with these words about the end. So here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to take us on a journey because the end, this idea, this big end, 
oh, has it changed so many times what we think this means. And so for those of you who like your a little bit of historical background, it's going to be a very little bit, I would like to take you across the five phases of Christian thought about the end. Five phases. Phase number one, the first century AD Christians in this land post Jesus' resurrection, this early church gathering together, and there was this fervid expectation then of the end of all things. Jesus came into a culture where a lot of people are, are awaiting God's sudden engulfing of history and everything's going to be over. Jesus came into a culture like this and when the early church pondered Jesus' use of many various words, Jesus' own language that sounded a little bit like Daniel, this term son of man comes up, Jesus uses this and he's engaging. He's engaging what they know of the book of Daniel at this point in time. It's a code word that they would have picked up from the book of Daniel. And some of the imagery around the crucifixion that the darkness and the storm and the earthquake and the raising of the dead, all of these also fantastical images yet that we know are a part of Jesus' story, all of this plays into this same imagery of the end. Except you're aware, I think, that the world didn't end in the first century. You're here, right? So some people say Jesus just got it wrong. Jesus, if Jesus was talking about the end, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sky is going to go dark. The veil is going to be torn. They thought he was talking about the end. Did Jesus get it wrong then? Others thought maybe what he was really talking about was, I'm taking these off. That's not what he was talking about. But there you go. Um, other people thought maybe what he was really talking about was the, again, the 70 AD destruction of the temple. That feels like the end again. And then others just thought it was metaphor. What is Jesus talking about? So this unresolved question leads to phase two in our journey or in our thought process as a humanity about the end. Phase two begins 300 years after that. In year 312, the emperor Constantine, you know that word, he converts to Christianity. And to many Christians, this felt finally like the end, the end of the world, but in a good way. God had finally taken hold of history now. Christians didn't have to live below the surface anymore. They didn't have to, to hide their faith anymore. Instead, now Christians are no longer persecuted. Indeed, they are in charge now. Heaven had come on earth. All didn't turn out as rosy as we thought it might, but perhaps for Western Christians, this was the end in a good way. God's way, the Christian way, <laughs> is now what rules. Whereas the early church, the end of the world, has this dreaded feel to it for them. They were dreading this thing that might happen for the Constantinian church. The end of the world was this good thing. It had finally happened. So let's move to phase three in this history. 
Move to phase three, which we might call the less upbeat time after the fall of the Roman Empire. In the fifth century, or for another thousand years after that, here the sense of this future foreboding again. There is an end coming up and we don't know what to think about it, but what changed was the end of the world was not as much this sudden cosmic event like, like a nuclear event. It, it, it wasn't this sudden cosmic event, but instead it became this really largely personal event. It was less about heaven coming to earth and now much more about the vast judgment scene, where all kinds of people are sent to everlasting bliss or eternal torment. This might be something you are now a little bit more familiar with. If you look past, if you look um, in the west door of any Romanesque or Gothic cathedral, you will see pictures of the saints going up, floating up the stairs, and you know those other people, the weary and the heavy laden and the sinful, going down the stairs as if to two different destinations. This idea of the end takes this personal sense that it's my personal judgment. Will I go to heaven or will I go to hell? And the end of the world isn't any longer an interruption, but more of a fair and reasonable completion of the story where the bad get punished and the good get vindicated. But two things change as we transition from part three, phase three of this story to phase four. One is that between the 17th and 19th centuries, there takes place what I would call a turn of the subject. Instead of looking to God as the reference point for all things, people increasingly look to themselves. They increasingly look to human beings as the reference point for all things. That didn't necessarily mean they stopped believing in God, but it did mean that God's action and history came to be seen more as arbitrary intervention, less as a normal or obvious, it's just God may be here. The other thing that changed was that from around the middle of the 19th century, people gradually stopped believing in hell. Tabloid newspapers still screamed that notorious criminals should rot in hell, of course, but in general, when a person is facing their own death, they're less worried that they're going to burn in hell, right? And they're more worried that they're going to be wiped out into some kind of white oblivion. So, in part four of the story, the judgment scene of the Gothic cathedral no longer makes sense. There is no... Um, there's my picture again. Good <laughs> Lord, this thing's dri driving us crazy today. Um, it no longer makes sense, the judgment scene. Just turn it off, Brad. Just turn it off. Um, so in part four, we no longer have the judgment scene, but we have this, um, this sense that, that I am the center of my own existence. So go with me for a second as we come back to the story. I know we got a little distracted there. Go with me for a second to your primary school playground. Take, just maybe close your eyes and picture yourself at your primary school playground. You're having a really good time there. Maybe you're playing um, hide and go seek, or uh, you are playing hopscotch, 
or you're playing on one of those death trap merry-go-rounds. <laughs> and then this recess administrator comes out, rings a bell, and tells you you have to go back into the classroom. And you find this action deeply disappointing and completely unreasonable and tragic, and you resent it to the core of your soul as like an eight-year-old. In part four, and phase four of this idea of the end of the world, God is like an arbitrary, unreasonable school administrator calling time on human existence for no legitimate reason at all. And Jesus is, all the things Jesus says about the end, you know, I'm coming back one day, seems to be an intrusion on our lives. A far-fetched far -fetched language in, in its intruding into our self-absorbed world of modernity that we rather like. Despite the horror of two world wars, people still held on to the assumption that science and civilization could iron out the glitches in existence and bring the world to an end, it, that that was just egregious, the idea that God would bring the world to an end in a pointless waste. Why? why? It, it felt like calling time on primary school recess. Why would God do that? Which leads us to part five, phase five, which is maybe the last 40 to 50 years, maybe 50 to 60 years, there's this new phase now that we're in related to the end. And the end of the world is something we don't resent God for doing to us. It's become something that we fear we're doing to ourselves now. Some of you grew up when Ronald Reagan was elected and there was this real fear of nuclear threat. And you, some of you recall, recall that day. Some of you know well the conversation we're having now about global warming and climate change. No sooner was the Cold War over than the ecological threat comes about and we're going to destroy ourselves now, we start to think. Suddenly, it's, it's not bombs, but it's us. Suddenly, it's not some, some gigantic interaction of God coming in and blowing up our world and, and heaven comes on earth, but it's us. So the end of the world, a, a mysterious prophecy of Jesus that seems connected to Daniel, a fulfillment in Constantine, finally bringing the church to its right order, a dread the dread of God, you know, destroying the earth in the Middle Ages, and an arbitrary intrusion on the life we'd rather God not get into in modernity. These are our options of the end that we've adopted over time. And now we're in this that it's some kind of punishment for all our industrial sins, right? And so, here's the thing. 
what if, what if they're all wrong? What if they're all wrong? What if these various options, and maybe you're hanging on one of them, maybe you've heard them before, maybe your grandma's used them before, maybe you, you know them, these various options we've had through history, maybe, maybe these, none of these are right. What, what are we to make of these five phases of this idea of the end? Well, in a word, they're wrong. They're wrong because they all see time in this incredibly linear way, like a journey from A to B. And it looks like a guillotine finally comes down before we reach B in the end, and whatever B is, and why would God end it before we ever, whatever we reach there. Instead, maybe we think of time in a different way. Have you ever been to an arcade and there's this um, like spinning vortex thing that you put um, something into and you watch it go around and around and around and what seems like maybe a game or a challenge you end up finding out is really a fundraiser because um, enough pennies and nickels have spun down that hole over and over again. What if it turns out to be something more like this. It's mesmerizing to watch a coin um, spin down. For Christians, what if time is more like this? We're all being drawn towards an end, like a speck of metal toward a magnet or a coin into a vortex, maybe. The end of the world or the end, whatever this end is that Jesus talks about, isn't a random moment when an arbitrary God in a fit of petulance loses patience with the world and sends everyone upstairs to bed without dinner. The end of the world is maybe where God started. The purpose of creation was to lay the foundations and, and to set out the ingredients for the end of the world. And as soon as God involved us in the story, it was guaranteed the story wouldn't entirely go as God had wanted it to go. But God still involves us in the story anyways. And that's why we always are going to, to need an end to draw us together, all the good parts and redeem all the bad parts and make a true and wondrous world in which we could be God's companion forever. Jesus is God showing us the purpose of creation and the cost of our waywardness. And fundamentally, Jesus is God showing us what the end of the world will be like. Jesus is the end of the world. A weary afternoon spent at the bedside of a dying relative may seem hopeless and miserable at the time, but at the end of the world, we'll see it as an icon of how God abides with us. If you're in a quandary about how to live your life or, or facing a crossroads 
of truth or virtue, ask yourself the backwards question, does this belong in Jesus' end? Or is it something I'm trying hastily to squeeze in before the, the administrator comes out and ring, rings the bell? Oh, somebody at work who is watching daily their loved one die and having to still come to the mundanity of work. A gentle hand on their shoulder seems to be a complete waste of time. It's not efficient. You've got other things to do. But perhaps that's what's in the end. And arguing over the space of desks, somebody's desk is messy next to yours, and they're intruding into your space seems super, super important at the time. But perhaps there's no place for that in the end. In all of the examples, and all of these examples and plenty more, notice the ambiguity of the word end. Y'all are still wanting me to define it, and I'm not, right? The ambiguity of the word end, sometimes it means a conclusion to things, like the words the end at the end of a film or the end of a book, right? But sometimes it means a goal or, or a purpose, like in the end justifies the means. If we're to understand the end of the world, this, what's at the end of, of Daniel, what's at the beginning of Revelation, what's at the end of Revelation, these things give us a picture of what this Jesus talks about as this second coming, this end. If we are to understand the end of the world, we need to take our eyes off the conclusion of the world's story and look more closely at the purpose of the world's existence. The more aware we are of the purpose of the world's existence, the less worried we need to be about the conclusion of the world's story. Of course we care about nuclear catastrophe. Of course we do. Of course we care about ecological degradation. Of course we do. But the answer to these questions lies not in averting a conclusion to the world's story. It lies in, in, in clarifying the purpose of the world's existence to begin with. And so this is what the second coming of Jesus is all about. When we sing words like, lo, he comes with clouds ascending, we're not celebrating a correct prediction of the timing of the world's conclusion or even hoping that on judgment day we'll, we'll be going upstairs instead of downstairs. We're saying that in Jesus, Jesus has shown us what the world was created for. It was, was created for perfect relationship with God and humanity, human beings with one another and humankind with all the whole created order. And in Jesus, we see all these things made flesh. The astonishing thing about creation is that rather than skip straight to the end of the world, God has given us time, invited us into to shaping it and, and coloring it and influencing it and inflecting what the world will finally be like. We're a part of that because the end of the world will be made up of the stray elements of this world. The cast off, the remnants, the pieces left on the floor. And Jesus became one of those cast offs 
to show us how God makes the end of the world out of what we, the world, might reject and tread down. And so our faith and our wisdom at the end of this bizarre series, <laughs> bizarre words from God, bizarre stories from scripture, bizarre visions of Daniel, our faith and our wisdom is not that we know the day or the hour, but that we understand the purpose of all things. We know that, that the end, where the end of the world is real, that the, to know that the end of the world is real, that Jesus has an end in mind, but we need not fear it. We need not fear it because we have already seen it. The end is Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I know we want more answers than this. And so throughout time, we have set up all of these other answers to this, this quandary of what is ahead. And we either want more answers or we quite frankly want to avoid the conversation altogether because it just makes us uncomfortable. And yet, without even thinking, we come and profess these words every single week that we believe you died and you resurrected and that you will come again and that, that there will be an end to our suffering. There will be an end to whatever we experience in the world now, whatever is weighing on our hearts, whatever is too much for us to bear, that there's going to be an end. And those of us who are suffering, who know what it's like to experience sickness or grief or pain even today, know that clinging to the end is exactly what we need. We can't imagine not seeing past that. That's good news for us, God. But in the not understanding it, not knowing what to do with it, not knowing if we can um, make sense of it, we begin to set up all of these various ways to think of you and we set ourselves apart from others and we strive to be the ones that end up to heaven wherever the other ones end up to hell and we we create all of these different stories that try to pinpoint the end what the end will be rather than weaving ourselves into the purpose of all existence which is you Jesus you are our first and our last, our beginning and our end. And so today we enter into that mystery. We say, what if all of those ways is not it? And instead, we've already seen the end. We've seen the end and how you have drawn near, Jesus, to the vulnerable and the broken to the poor and the hurting, to those who are grieving, to those who are heavy laden, and how you call us to do the same. We see the end, we see your end, when we take the time to wonder if pieces of our life have any bearing on the end have any bearing on existence, have any bearing on your purpose. God, orient our whole beings, our whole life, our whole way. Make us wise to those things and wise to the things that have nothing to do with your end. 
We join together in that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.